Hello, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 1 of The Launch Pod, which is a podcast by St. Louis University's Career Services. I'm Mandy, the Career Counselor for the College of Arts and Sciences, and now I'm your new host on The Launch Pod. Today, we are going to be talking about disability employment awareness for the month of October. So we have Haley Moss here. She's actually a neurodiversity expert. She is an attorney, advocate, author, speaker, and a ton of different other titles that I'm sure I didn't bring up, but I wanted to say thank you, Haley, for speaking with us today. How are you doing? I am doing well, and thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to be here, and I'm really excited to dive into this topic and get to just have a good conversation and hopefully educate folks along the way and maybe laugh a little bit. Yes, I'm very excited. I know I'm going to get something out of this as well. (laughs) I wanted to say a shout out to Di. She's the one who told me about you, that you had went to um, a conference last week, the Starkloff Disability Employment Summit, and she said that she had heard you speak and it was really engaging and she enjoyed it. So I'm very excited to have you on the launch pod today. Thank you. So um, with that being said, do you want to tell me a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I always describe myself as an educator by choice and an attorney by trade, meaning that I am someone who went to law school. I love being in law practice, but I love getting to hopefully impact and teach people a little bit more about disability and neurodiversity along the way. My personal background is where this kind of comes into play, and somehow this got married with my professional life, so I feel very, very lucky. I was diagnosed with autism back in the late 90s. I was three years old. I was originally a late speaker or non-speaker, depending on how you like to look at things and what your perspective on that is. And my parents got the whole doom and gloom report, all the things I would never do. Thankfully, they did not believe that. They did not take no for an answer. And they really encouraged and pushed me and advocated alongside me my entire life. So I feel very, very blessed. I am the author of several books. I genuinely just say I get to have fun and feel very lucky every single day because even though I get to teach people about disability and neurodiversity, I'm the one who gets to learn from every unique person that I encounter, their personal experiences and more. And I get to take that with me. And then I get to share the things I've learned from the so many people that I've met along the way with more people and keep snowballing this message and getting people to care and to be more empathetic and to make things more accessible and inclusive for everybody. So that is a little bit about me outside of work. I am what I always tell people a little bit of a nerd and a little bit of a dork, but I think everybody is. It's basically, I think once you hit your twenties, your thirties, whatever, and you have a little bit of a base underneath you, you realize you could be the person that you wanted to be when you were 13, but everyone told you you were weird for it. So I really love to draw. I love to paint. I love to read young adult fiction and the occasional romance novel, watch some bad TV, watch lots of sports. I am a Swifty, as I know we discussed before we got started, and I play a lot of video games. So I feel like I just get to be the best of everything and I just get to have fun. I love hearing all of this. Um, (laughs) I wish we would have been able to meet at the conference as well, just knowing that you're a (laughs) Swifty. I think it would have been fun personally, and I would have tried my best for both of our sakes to slide in some good Taylor Swift references in there that weren't too obviously trying too hard. But, you know, if you know, you know. Exactly. I like to do those things, too. (laughs) With that being said, since I didn't get to attend those things, what were some of the things that you got to discuss there when you were presenting? A lot of what I got to discuss was my personal story a little bit because everyone loves disability stories. And I also wanted to challenge how we think about disability stories. That so often when we ask disabled people to 
to tell our stories, but this wasn't necessarily the case at Star Clock because it's by and for disabled people, which is super cool. And the theme was disabled people thriving. I would talk about how the stories that we tell have the ability to make an impact and that we use our stories for good, not to just make people feel like, oh, thank goodness that's not me or that's not my situation. I also got to talk about what neurodiversity is, neurodiversity in the workplace, and also just how we can be better allies and make things more accessible for everybody. Like I said, I got to have fun. I enjoyed every second of it and really just thoroughly appreciated being in community with so many disabled people alongside myself that are just advocating and fighting and doing the thing to make things more inclusive for all of us, not just people with disabilities. I love hearing that. It definitely like um, being on the spectrum myself, it, knowing that there's someone actually advocating for people like me and having them realize like we are capable as well. I love hearing this. So We really are capable and it's not so much that I encourage employers and people to just give us a chance. It's like, hey, we're here. We might already be working for you. And chances are you are not doing the best job of including us and our lives are being made unnecessarily difficult through no fault of our own. Please help make it better and help bridge that gap. Yes, thank you. You literally are like, it's like you're taking the words out of my mouth. <laughs> I know earlier you mentioned when you were talking about yourself um, that you have written about four books, I think, about yep. your experience with neurodivergent people, right? Can you talk more about your books, especially like the Freshman Survival Guide for College Students and also the Young Autistic Adults Independence Handbook? Absolutely. What feels really strange revisiting the Freshman Survival Guide is I wrote that mostly during my first year of college. And my views 10 years ago were very different than my views now, which is a very fun thing to experience and something that I think a lot of neurodivergent folks in particular can tell you and disabled people more broadly is that your relationship with your own disability or neurodivergence changes throughout your life. And the relationship that I had as a younger person was one of that I felt like I had to fit in, that I had to have the most typical college experience possible. And when I look back on that, I realized that's not the case, but I really wanted to help make that transition better for so many people at that age, because when I college. I didn't know that many neurodivergent or autistic people who went in the first place. I didn't have the support. All the support that was out there was geared towards parents of neurodivergent students and autistic students that those opportunities weren't there. So I'm like, I actually have to go write about this. And what I wanted to do the young autistic independent adults, excuse me, independence handbook, what came to mind for me is that there are a lot of adult things that I am simply not good at or that are not taught. So when I got to college, I had no clue how to do laundry. Not because I didn't know what detergent looked like or what the steps involved were, but because the washer dryer configuration was that different from the one in the house where I grew up in, that I did not know which one was the wash and which one was the dryer. And I unfortunately had a 50-50 chance of guessing correctly and I guessed wrong. And I thought I was the worst adult in history. I have learned since then, I was not the worst adult in history. There's so much more we could do to prep neurodivergent and autistic young people to live on their own, not live on their own, or just have a little bit more independence and even be vulnerable and asking for help or advocating for ourselves, registering to vote, all sorts of different things. So helping to lay out those steps and make it a little bit better for everyone is something that I was really excited about. And I got to interview a couple experts who taught me new things to be better at, you know, being an adult 
So I got to learn how to try new food, for instance, which is something I find very overwhelming and very scary. And I am one of history's worst eaters because of the autism. Yay me. But that was something I got to learn from talking to someone who works on food stuff with autistic people. So I got to pass on all of that cool knowledge and more. And writing is such a joy. I'm actually working on another book now. And hopefully I can get it done in time for the deadline because this is stressful. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, to even say you wrote a book, though, that is a accomplishment in itself. And you've done four, almost five now. So I'm I'm definitely interested in checking them out. I will have to definitely look on Amazon and purchase those things. <laughs> that means a lot to me. Thank you. So one of the worst parts about writing a book is having to market it <laughs> and having to convince people to buy your stuff. And it's something that makes me feel so deeply uncomfortable because that's not my personality to be like, hey, buy my stuff. No, that's totally fair. Well, now it's uh, marketed on the launch pod and I will definitely let my coworkers and colleagues know. (laughs) I so appreciate you. So you mentioned advocating earlier. Um, How do you recommend neurodivergent people who are searching for jobs to go about that process and advocating for themselves? That is a great question because there is no one size fits all approach to this. The best jobs that I have had and internships for that matter too, because I know we have young people joining us probably as well. The best experiences I had were with people who were allies already. So the best supervisors I ever had were parents of neurodivergent or disabled kids themselves that wanted to make things better for the next generation or selfishly their own children, is that they genuinely were committed. They understood things that I didn't have to explain. But when it came to the traditional job search, I did not have the best experience. And this is something I've noticed a lot of other autistic and neurodivergent people had. So I went through a traditional job search just for fun to kind of get the lay of the land right when the pandemic was starting, probably not the best time to go searching. But I thought that maybe I would want to have another role in law practice while I was also doing this. And and when I interviewed, all the questions quickly went off the rails because I disclosed, because I had a non-traditional background. And I knew immediately, especially because before the interview, they made me fill out a personality test that I was not going to do well because they're probably looking for someone who's extremely extroverted, extremely go-getter, extremely this, this, and this. I'm like, well, you know, I'm very introverted. I am motivated and driven, but I might not be the level of self-start that you need me to be because I need guidance. And I realized very quickly, this is not a situation I will thrive in. And I can understand why so many neurodivergent people bounce around interviews and jobs. And it's so easy to get discouraged and think that you're the problem, that maybe your resume isn't long enough. Maybe you have typos in your cover letter. Maybe something is just wrong or you come across a way that people just don't get. And it shows how much is flawed about the job process. Don't be afraid to ask for accommodations and advocate for yourself if you need it, because those things are there to make you your best self when it comes to jobs and interviewing in professional culture, it's really difficult to weigh so many different dis- like decisions on disclosure to figure out how you want to present yourself. But I hope that you don't give up and you have someone in your corner that is there to help you through the process or advocate with you or to figure out the best strategy, or hopefully you can network accessibly to find people who just get it. Yes, I I definitely understand when you said having supervisors that understand because of their experiences or with their own family. So I, I it's been nice in the past to have those types of supervisors and that support and their understanding. Oh, for sure. 
<laughs> I read such a long way. Oh, yes, for sure. I had read one of your articles earlier this week, and I remember it bringing up answering the do you have a disability question in the application portion. What is your advice? Like, how do you go about disclosing a potential employer that you are neurodivergent? And do you feel that it's something necessary to bring up? And if so, when? Great question, because this is going to get a lawyer answer from you of it depends on your situation, how you feel, your comfort level, and your relationship with neurodiversity. I am someone who feels very comfortable disclosing, even though it is uncomfortable at the same time. I feel comfortable having that conversation, but I can't always judge someone else's reaction. I'm very used to sharing. I can't avoid it because you Google my name as employers often do. I am going to have to explain it one way or another. So I am very forced into being comfortable, but it's valid whether or not you disclose. I always tell people the only time it's truly 100% necessary for you to disclose is if you are requesting an accommodation that you are entitled to as a person with a disability under the law. And essentially, it safeguards you against discrimination, harassment, all this good stuff. But if and when you disclose is entirely your decision... I pragmatically have had things that are more successful if I do not disclose. And I've also had times that were more successful if I did, because there was a personal connection to the topic. So it really does depend. And what can be difficult, like I was telling you about that other interview, when I did disclose, I was immediately being asked a very different set of questions than I would have had I chosen not to. That instead of being asked about my law practice experience, I was being asked about different strengths and weaknesses or things that you actually cannot necessarily ask if somebody does disclose, which a lot of employers don't necessarily know what they can and can't do. So it's very much a minefield and it's not always an easy one to navigate and figure out what's best for you. And sometimes that does take a little bit of trial and error. But if you realize you're not getting the answers that you need or want, if you do disclose, consider maybe not. And if you aren't getting the support that you need, consider disclosing as well. And the right employer, I think, will be accepting no matter what you do. And if you do disclose, they will be more than happy to have you regardless, or in fact, because of your disability or neurodivergence. Nice. So I know that you said the fact them them knowing you have the disability. So what sort of unique perspectives can neurodivergent people bring to the workplace? I believe neurodivergent people bring creativity, innovation, a unique perspective, different ways of just doing things and overall diversity. I am always very hesitant to say that we bring increased productivity and all this other stuff that gets touted and loyalty. Those two things get touted a lot in this conversation, but I try to avoid saying you're going to get very productive and loyal employees when you hire neurodivergent people. And I say that because A lot of the time folks are loyal because, again, if you're accepting of us and we've been ostracized or it's that difficult to even land that job or the interview, we're going to stay regardless. But that also makes it seem like it could be a toxic relationship that you might not be good to us and we will stay anyway. And I don't want our people getting exploited. And as far as productivity, we are people just like anyone else. Good days, bad days, something in between. I can hyper-focus on a project or I can get easily distracted. Or I can also, if I am forced or expected to be hyper-productive all the time, like many others, I will burn out. I want us to think of neurodivergent people as exactly that, people. So we do bring all that diversity and all that good stuff, but I also want us to avoid falling into the trap of you're going to get a human supercomputer working with you. It's not always an easy thing to 
conceptualize and make sense of sometimes, but I'm doing the best that I can. And we're better off having different kinds of minds in the workplace. And also when we have disability inclusion at work, it benefits everybody's bottom line. It benefits the clients and consumers. It benefits the profit margins of a business, oftentimes that they make more money than if they don't hire people with disabilities. And it just inspires trust and community relationships and so much more. It's a no-brainer to have disability inclusion is always what I tell people. I love that you brought up the loyalty aspect. That's something I've always described myself as, is that I'm loyal, whether it be a job or a friendship. So that made me kind of laugh inside my head when you were talking. (laughs) I am the same way. I'm also a people pleaser, but I'm learning how to set better boundaries. And it's something I think a lot of neurodivergent people need to learn, primarily because if someone shows us an iota of kindness at one point in time, we will stick with you forever, even if you eventually turn on us the other way. And it makes me worry. And I also just don't want neurodivergent and autistic people getting exploited for their labor, their talent, their good nature. So I feel like loyalty is a double-edged sword. I would agree with that statement as well. (laughs) So I know earlier you had brought up when I asked the question earlier about giving me a lawyer's answer. So what has your experience with law taught you? Do you? Did you have any challenges getting into the field? Law and law school have taught me more things than I can imagine. I am extremely grateful and privileged to have a law background. I realize that not a lot of people have access to justice or access to law school. And what the biggest determinations of that are, are sometimes is how well you perform on a standardized test or grades because you need to have succeeded in some respect at a four-year university. And I know for many autistic students, graduation or even attending a four-year university isn't even in the cards. So I recognize the amount of privilege it takes to get there in the first place. I do think that the field has other issues on top of ableism. When we talk about, is it difficult to break into or getting into, it is still male-dominated, especially in the higher ranks of who makes partner and whatnot within private firms and private practice. It is is behind when it comes to and that when I first started talking about neurodiversity with law firms and in the field, I got laughed at and was looked at like I had three heads. And now everybody is finally catching up and wanting to learn, which is very, very cool and keeps me very busy. I do feel that having a law background makes me more critical. It makes me a better thinker, a better speaker, a better writer. It makes me so much more in tune with things that I didn't know how to articulate and how to question which again, I'm extremely grateful for and realize what a privilege it is. And some of the other big barriers, and I know we could probably be here all day talking about is things like standardized tests Mm -hmm. that don't always reflect what you know or what your ability to thrive is. And they don't always measure what you think they will. So I have actually done a lot of my research while I was in law school, I was on journal. And what I did was all about standardized tests is that basically they don't always measure what they say they're going to measure and they don't really predict your success, especially things like the law school admissions test or the LSAT. And even the bar exam doesn't predict how well you will be able to practice because if you are expected to practice the way that you were expected to study for and take the bar, it would be malpractice. No one wants their lawyer memorizing out all the rules and exceptions to the rules. You want your lawyer to research it, know every single update and be able to cite it perfectly. So... It goes to show there's a lot of discrepancy in who gets access and how much the profession does as gatekeeping that can often be unnecessary and especially burdensome to disabled and neurodivergent people, especially if you're marginalized in another way. 
I love though that you were able to um, talk with their, you know, with your law school and such and your experience and able to make them realize like this is something serious. I have a lot of feelings about my law school in particular in this space. So my law school actually denied all of my accommodation requests. <gasps> oh my gosh. <laughs> Because they they wanted even more documentation because I had documentation from when I was like three through 18 and I didn't really take advantage of my undergrad disability services because I only did housing accommodations through them. And that was apparently not good enough to get anything in law school, which in turn meant that I couldn't get things on the bar exam. And it was just this big snowball effect of ways that the sy- systemic failures have influenced me. And meanwhile, your peers think you have an unfair advantage and you're getting every single accommodation. So they look at you as like a competitive liability. That is crazy that happened that I can't imagine how you felt in that moment, having to experience that and go through it. But clearly you've made it through today. (laughs) Like if you want the honest answer, like any scared 21 year old would feel (laughs) that I was, I was young. So I graduated undergrad in three years and I went straight to law school. I'm extremely blessed. I have a very complicated relationship to this because I got a full scholarship to my law school to do public interest. I am internally grateful for that support because it made it accessible for me. Meanwhile, the system itself was inaccessible, but I had the financial accessibility and obviously some higher ups who believed in me and what I can contribute to the profession and to the environment. But at the same time, the environment was not fully accessible for me. So that's a complicated thing. And as a 21-year-old kid, I didn't really know how to advocate for myself the way I do now. And essentially, you're expected to have legal advocacy level skills while you are in training to become a legal advocate. So (laughs) definitely a a journey. For sure. And I just hearing about it's definitely a journey. With that being said, I know that you brought up advocating, but how have you gone about navigating in spaces that don't assume a person might be neurodivergent? I think this is a complicated thing since so many of us do mask and camouflage those different traits that are obvious that we're neurodivergent or try to blend in with neurotypical society. It's a lot like being a second language learner in the fact that no one speaks your dominant language or very few people do or the language that you know best and you have to speak their language and everybody knows it's not your first language and they're very harsh at judging you for it. So sometimes we're trying our best. It's exhausting. So what I try to do is not all that, but I try to figure out how can I make this space accessible or how can I negotiate with myself or who's in it to make it bearable. So for instance, I went to a restaurant last week, not in St. Louis. This was when I got home. (laughs) And what happened is it was extremely loud and extremely crowded. And I was very, very overwhelmed. It was slated to be about a two hour event. So what I told myself when I got there and I realized it was going to be that loud, crowded and that much of a sensory onslaught for me, I told myself all I had to do was stay for 30 minutes, long enough to register that I was there, to say hello, to maybe get a bite to eat or some kind of appetizer, at least make it to pass the appetizer round, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was how I made it accessible for me and to navigate that. And if I said, and if I thought it was too much, I would come up with an excuse because they're not going to change the venue on the spot like that. And I had agreed to go knowing that this was a potential thing that can happen. So I was thinking, okay, stay for a half hour. And if you don't feel well or you're overwhelmed, just say you don't feel well. People understand that because that is acceptable in neurotypical society. If, you know, your stomach hurts versus, you know, my ears are bleeding because there are so many clattering pieces of silverware and plates and people shouting at each other. So 
that is the socially acceptable version of that is what I've learned. And I actually stayed for about two hours because it went over the two hours I had originally thought the event would be. I stayed up until right before dessert came. And I was proud of myself that, but I do think if in something like that, if it was assumed that at least one or two people were neurodivergent or had sensory differences, we might've had a different venue or I might've just simply agreed not to go. But you can't just say no to everything because it's inaccessible because how else are people going to learn? And also there are opportunities that it feels like in your professional life, you have to take regardless. Like you want to go networking, you want to. I always say accessibility is giving people the option to say yes or no, not feel like they have to say no because they just can't do it. That you want people to say no because they don't want to, not because they simply can't. Being overstimulated, just hearing you talk about that, I I definitely can relate. And I appreciate hearing you say that people do understand because I do feel sometimes people don't understand why I might be a little bit more irritable or something if a, it is loud or I'm hearing a repetitive news yep. I can't you know get away from. I've noticed that one thing that people don't understand about me and about neurodiversity and autism in particular was what, what you're saying as well is that a lot of the times when I am very dysregulated from a sensory perspective, my executive function, or I just don't sleep enough, I come off as very irritable and moody. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to be moody. I'm not trying to be difficult. I'm just that heavily dysregulated that I don't know what to do. And I don't always have the vocabulary to say that. And it's taken me a very long time to realize, oh, it's not just that I'm moody or it's not just sexism that I'm a woman or whatever. It's literally that I'm that dysregulated. And in the moment when you're that drained from this sensory thing or being around people for too long, there's no real words to describe it because it just gets lost in your brain. And finally, I've had the vocabulary to explain to the people who I know the best and who know me the best of, you know, I really wasn't trying to snap at you. I was just that dysregulated. And it's, again, like just knowing that that's actually what's going on and you're not just in a bad mood and the fact that they would be understanding is huge in itself because not everyone always gets it. It's true, though. And that's why I think for so many of us, it's important to find your people or at least make other neurodivergent friends who you don't even have to explain this to. They just get it. (laughs) Yes, I feel like we do kind of travel in packs. (laughs) We really do. So the people that I have gravitated to the most throughout my life, and I've realized this, are neurodivergent but usually not also autistic, which I found very, very interesting. That is interesting. Like the best people I've known throughout my life have always been ADHDers. And it's because I think they get it without having to get the ins and outs of it that you see the exact same traits that you see in yourself. So they're not as self-reflective or self-critical the way that I would be. So sometimes when I have autistic friends, I notice the same things that I don't like about myself or that I find difficult in them. And it makes me kind of have to look inwards in a way that I don't always feel comfortable with, which is kind of a strange thing. But I've realized that a lot of other neurodivergent people have made me feel safe and we've created a community for each other. Snaps to that, all of that. I, the fact, this whole episode, I can relate and I really appreciate this so much. I know that you can bring up this topic because this stuff can be super stressful and awkward for people. And I want it to be about the joy and about the journey and not just like, oh, everything about being autistic or neurodivergent or having a disability is a bad thing because it really isn't. It's just a different way of existing. And I don't know any different. Yes, we're just trying to exist like everyone else. Yep. 
<laughs> with that being said, and you know, we know that women don't always have the best uh, luck with being diagnosed or being believed when it comes to talking about their symptoms and such. So what sort of unique challenges can being a woman with autism pose that other gender identities may not face? I think you just nailed the first one, which is who has access to a diagnosis mm-hmm. is that historically women and other basically non cisgender boys and men that we are diagnosed later on average. I am extremely privileged to have been diagnosed as a child because I was a non-speaking toddler. That's enough to get anyone concerned. I don't think if I was in a different set of circumstances, like if I did talk earlier, I don't know when or if I would have ever figured this out. So I feel very blessed there. I think there's also a lot of issues around safety, especially when it comes to dating and romantic relationships and just other people and sex. Like, I know that's not a topic I usually discuss, but it's something I think about a lot for neurodivergent women in particular, is that the rates of who gets assaulted and harassed are higher than the general population when it comes to disabled women more broadly. And it's something that I think about as well. And something that shows up in that space, actually, in intercommunity, intercommunity things, and this is something that I've seen being addressed more and more throughout social media, is neurodivergent cisgender men making neurodivergent women in particular feeling unsafe. And it's something I've known and have talked about privately for a long time, but seeing that conversation happen has been really powerful and validating because I had this experience that I was very afraid to name and to talk about and realized, oh my gosh, it's not just me that this happens to. And on top of the fact people don't believe you as a woman because that's the healthcare system more generally is they don't believe women's pain and anguish and issues that when we think about autism in particular and even ADHD perhaps, but a lot of the criteria are written with boys in mind. And also the popular image of these conditions is children and in particularly little boys, it's not adults and it's certainly not women, but really we're just not great at identifying women. Maybe it's due to the fact that we present differently because we might have more social motivations to mask. So every time we talk about masking and camouflaging, people always assume it's a women specific thing and it's really not, it's an all genders thing and all identities thing. It's just the motivations are different, which is why I personally believe women do it or appear to do it more often or are better at it not because we necessarily are, but because of the social implications of just being socialized and perceived as female. But lots of things to kind of unpack in terms of gender and sex when it comes to autism. Masking definitely drains my social battery like it ain't no thing. So I totally get that. (laughs) And it's just complicated. And I had this thing that was in my brain and I totally forgot what I was about to say. That is relatable in itself. Story of my life. <laughs> I don't know if this happens to you, but my my mouth moves faster than my brain. I'll lose a thought mid sentence. Yep. That, or I'll be think, or I'll be talking out as I'm thinking. So my closest friends make fun of me for this because they're like, you don't stop and think when you're talking. You just talk. Like <laughs> your brain doesn't have time to catch up with your mouth. And I'm like, yeah, pretty much. Yes. Talking to yourself. My friends are always like, who are you talking to? I'm like myself. It's okay. I'm just trying to figure stuff out. And sometimes talking to myself makes it better. (laughs) I wish that I can actually like project my internal monologue somewhere because it would be really interesting. (laughs) 
I think it's, it's also a lot more sarcastic and silly than people would imagine, which is why I love. So one of my favorite Netflix shows is you. And that's one of my favorite shows because I love the internal monologue that you have this guy that's definitely, you know, got a lot of issues as a serial killer and his mon- internal monologue is so sardonic and so relatable and just so smart. And then you hear what he actually says to the people and trying to like not have any of that come out. And it's so wild to me. And I'm, I love that part of the show more than anything else. That is a really great show. It hooked me like it very quickly. I have watched it more than once. And I think a lot about Joe's internal monologue being what drives the show, because I've even seen clips of it where they took out the monologue and it's so creepy. Oh, I bet. That the whole thing is basically driven by this sardonic internal monologue. And it's my favorite part of the whole show is that his monologue is brilliant in like a terrifying way. Hopefully they come out with another season or something along the way. They are. They they are. The next season is the final season. Oh, wow. Well, I definitely need to get caught up. Grad school definitely took my Netflix time out of me. (laughs) I mean, law school took away a lot of things from me. And even now, just traveling a lot for work and just existing, I'm like, oh, I can get back into things. And now that a lot of things are remote, I have more time to be like, oh, I can go watch this. I can do this. Or if I remember to focus on it. (laughs) Yeah. That is so relatable too. And just, yeah, you're right. Being able to realize, oh, I can go do these things that I wasn't able to do and enjoy again. Mm -hmm. So again, I know that you have done a ton of different things on top of being an author and a lawyer. You also have your own podcast, um, Spectrumly Speaking, which is by and for women on the autism spectrum. So can you tell me about your work on this project and what you types of people you've interviewed and what um, it consists of. Absolutely. So Spectrumly Speaking is hosted by a nonprofit called Different Brains, which is committed to neurodiversity. I feel very lucky that I have been one of the co-hosts on Spectrumly for four years now. Wow. And originally it was by and for women on the spectrum. And a lot of the guests that we have are women and gender diverse individuals almost exclusively. I don't believe we've had any cisgender men on the podcast because we want to elevate marginalized people, ideally with lived experience. We have had some parents and really great allies, but as long as I've been there, I've really pushed to have people who have lived experience in all regards to help out. So I enjoy podcasting because I get to have a good conversation with somebody new and I get to learn from them. So I get to ask a lot of good questions. I get to learn. I get to listen. And I find it fun. And it's a project that I didn't know brought me as much joy as it did until I would go months without recording because life would get in the way. And same with my co-host. And then we'd come back and I'd be like, you know, I really miss this because the conversations are that enlightening. Yeah, I'm really excited since this is my first season being on the launch pod to learn from other people and not only just from the St. Louis University community, but also St. Louis's community as a whole. I know that you brought up being on the podcast and working with all of these different guests. Do you have any advice for me since I I am new to the launch pad? I would treat it just like you're having a conversation with a friend, even the way that you and I are having this conversation that feels very natural, very organic. I think that's what makes podcasting so special as compared to radio or other types of interviewing is it's very natural if you let it be. And just kind of let the conversation take you where it does. I know I always prepare a couple of questions 
And sometimes I have another question that I just really want to ask and I realize I can, or that we'll just have this side sidebar conversation about something interesting. And then we'll just talk about that. So it's all how you enjoy the process and how you treat it. If you take it too seriously, it kind of shows and don't be afraid to let your personality shine as well, because really people come to podcasting, I think, because they want to listen to a great conversation. Amazing. I'm so glad I asked you that question. This has been one of the most informative and great. You're right. This has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking with you. Do you have anything that you want to tell our listeners? I would like the listeners and folks at home or wherever you're listening from to know that when we talk about neurodiversity and disability, to actually focus on the human and also to think about the joy in the journey and that we each bring to our lives and your lives. I say this because so often we focus on the things that are hard for us. We talk about how we're drained, the masking, the disorganization, the perceived social deficits. We talk about all the things that are hard, that we don't talk about the things that bring us joy, the way that we love, the way that we are empathetic, the talent that we bring to the workplace, what makes us who we are. So I ask us to think about the joy and the celebration of what disabled people bring into our lives. And if you are disabled yourself, that you have that kind of radical acceptance towards yourself too. I know that you probably have a ton of different social medias, and I know you have your own specific website, www.haleymoss.com. What are some of your other handles if listeners wanted to reach out and learn more about you? I am on Instagram at haley.moss. I am on Facebook X, I believe it is now called, which is very confusing to me, at Haley Mo- and, and TikTok at Haley Moss Art. Or you can always just send me an email or figure out what works best for you to communicate. I use all the things and I'm very excited to get to know you better. I'm definitely going to find you on LinkedIn right after this. Oh, and I'm on LinkedIn. Wow. I forgot. I always forget about LinkedIn. But yes, I am on LinkedIn as Haley Moss Esquire because I get to use my professional title, which always feels kind of cool. I love that. Well, yeah, like I said, definitely be prepared for that connection request to be coming your way. (laughs) I already beat you to it, I think, because I just want to look you up. Oh, there we go. Boom. I love that. (laughs) Because otherwise I'm going to forget. I use LinkedIn every day with work. So I I do enjoy being on there. It's an, I always call it a a professional Facebook. It really is professional Facebook. (laughs) Well, I wanted to say thank you again, Haley, for joining us today for this season, first episode of the launch pod. I really enjoyed learning more about you and what your experiences have been and also your advice for neurodivergent people. I am Um, grateful for for you as well. (laughs) I wanted to say thank you again for joining the launch pod. It's really been a good experience learning more about you and how you advocate for others. I also am excited to try and tune in more to your podcast now that I know more about it. And I'm definitely going to check out Amazon with your books as well. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you again for a great conversation. And I'm excited to see what comes next. For our second guest in this episode, we have Miles Urban with us, who's the Assistant Director of the Center for Accessibility and Disability Resources, which is known as CATER, right here at St. Louis University. We'll go ahead and get started. Um, Welcome to the podcast, Miles. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. It's midterms week, so we're a little busy, but I'm happy to be here. Great. I'm glad to have you here as well. Um, So the first question, obviously, we'd love to hear is, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself? 
Yeah, so I've been at SLU um, since uh, 2019. Uh, so this is my fourth year uh, here at SLU. Um, I'm a two-time uh, SLU alum, so I, I got my undergraduate degree here from SLU. Um, and then taught for three years in special education here in St. Louis. And then I came back from a master's um, in higher education uh, with an emphasis in higher education disability. Um, and then when I came back from my master's degree, I worked in this department as a graduate assistant and then uh, kind of made my way up from there. Um, I have uh, yeah two young kids. My, uh, my daughter is three and then I have a son. He's uh, 10 months old. Wow. So my life, my life is just constant chaos um but good chaos um <laughs> so yeah that's kind of that's my brief history of how I got connected to SLU which has been pretty unique awesome I love hearing that yeah what does your work look like in the center for accessibility and disability resources yeah so my primary role is um you know student facing so I um I meet with students um almost every day to um get their academic housing and clinical accommodations up at St. Louis University. So um, majority it is um, academic accommodations. So, you know, we have students who have um, testing exam accommodations, note-taking accommodations of that nature. Um, and that's kind of like the primary piece of my job um, here is that student-facing role. But other, other pieces I do too is... Um, uh, my role as the assistant director is the faculty side, so um, creating and um, implementing some training opportunities for faculty. So one of the things that we did this uh, the first time last year, we we launched an um, an ADA um, Universal Design joint course with the Reiner Center um, for faculty to participate in, which has been really helpful for faculty to kind of get an understanding of how um the 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 government's legislation on uh, accommodations in a higher education setting um what that means for them as faculty so what the responsibilities are but also like talking through the process of what the responsibility of the student is and then talking through like how to determine um reasonable accommodations in a, in a course you know looking at that how to um have conversations with students about their accommodations in a course um how to and then the Reiner Center does a really great job of, of explaining universal design and how to use universal design as a pedagogy in their teaching um and their course structure and, and course development um which is really great um and it's been very in my eyes very helpful for um connecting with faculty. Um, and also a part of my role is working closely with the Dean of Students Office. So um, they're kind of going, we're kind of going through this process of revamping of the leave of absence um, and creating a better resource guide for students navigating that leave of absence process and what that means, um, what they should be thinking about, um, who they should contact and learning about how that leave of absence may impact that area. So like financial aid, um, their course degree and, and their plans for graduation, um, their, scho uh, their scholarship, um, other resources they may be connected with, whether they are like a, a veteran and how, the, how does that affect their veteran, veteran benefits. Um, if they have, you know, student health insurance, you know, how does that impact uh, taking a leave of absence? So that's one thing we're working on as dean of students office. Um, and last uh, other big piece um, is um, 
working with other campus um, partners and campus stakeholders. So my job is to create better connections in those capacities and spaces to have a better um, understanding of how we can support each other and how we can utilize those relationships to better support students. Um, so that's another big piece of my role here at the university. Definitely sounds like you have a lot on your plate, but it also sounds really rewarding since you get to work with so many different types of people at the university. It is cool. I, I do really like, um, I love people. I, I like, um, I love interacting with people, learning about people, learning their backgrounds, learning their history, and then how can I be a better uh, resource for them as well. So I'm always wanting to, you know, connect with either department heads on campus or um, new staff members that kind of join the university. I, I always love to chat with them and see how we can, our office can better support them. And whether that's just like educational, like what do we do and um, how can they refer students to us and what, you know, what, how can I support them in any capacity too? So uh, I really love the the people aspect in, at this university. I think the university does a really good job of, you know, facilitating that kind of conversation between people and departments here on campus. I definitely agree. I feel like I know way more people than I would expect from working here a little over a year now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so as we know, it's Disability Employment Awareness Month. What are some common issues that you've seen from students with disabilities who are trying to find jobs? Yeah, I think um, one of the biggest pieces that I hear from students when I talk with them about um, transitioning to the workforce is knowing how to navigate that conversation of how do I disclose I have said diagnosis or said disability, how do I have a conversation, how this may impact my work um, and the role I am applying for, and also them having some um, reservations on like, do I disclose this, should I disclose this, you know, and then also like, talking about, you know, if I do share this, do I, will this impact my standing in the application process? Um, I think it's because it looks a lot different um, when you go for, even from the transition from high school to um, uh, college setting, that trans transition process in terms of what their rights are and what they are able to receive in terms of like accommodations and services. But that even changes vastly when they go into the workforce. Um, you know, mainly when you have the the high school setting, you have, if you have a combination set up through either through a 504 or an IEP, an individualized education plan, um, those are federal mandates. So those are usually handled by a liaison or point person to run those kinds of meetings, implementation process. So they have like a case manager, they have a school counselor um, or some other designated person. And most of the time that's run also by their parents too. Like the parents are making decisions because they're under the age of 18. Um, parents are deciding what's the best route for them. But then when you come to college, they turn, they are 18. So they are the person making those decisions. And then it's kind of just like, Hey, if you want accommodations, you have to go to this office. And sometimes there's a, uh, a gap in knowing where to go for that or what's eligible for accommodations. Um, but then when you go to the, the, the career setting or employment setting, it's all these accommodations are done through HR. So for students who are graduating from an undergraduate institution or even sometimes a graduate institution, a graduate program, they have never dealt with an HR process before. They've dealt with, you know, an office like mine. They've dealt with a case manager. They've dealt with um, 
their parents doing this process for them. So this is a, a totally new ball game in terms of how do they navigate the accommodations process in this new type of um, space. So that conversation is definitely a struggle of, well, what can I, what can I do? What are my rights? What can I request? What, what are my limitations and how is that process works? And that's something that we definitely see students is figuring out how to go through that process. Nice. I'm really glad to hear that you guys work with them so well. So that way they're more prepared for when it's time to look for those jobs. Um, I know you guys brought or use resources. So one of the resources I actually learned about when I was interviewing Haley before you was uh, it's called JAM, the Job Accommodation Network. Yep. Can you tell me a little bit about the service and how it helps students find employment? Yeah. So the the JAM Network, uh, JAM is a... Um, is a resource for students to access about kind of like skills and 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 learning opportunities to engage in that accommodation request in the workforce. So, if a student who's trying to uh, is uh, is a current job seeker and they're figuring out how to have like disclose the like disclosure um, requesting accommodations in the application process how to have conversations conversations with their supervisor and HR. Jan is a place to go because they have, you know, um, information for um, job seekers to read about, to learn about. They have some training opportunities that they can attend, like webinars, but also it's for em em employers. So if they employers are trying to figure out how do we have this conversation on the employees, the employer side with a prospective employer, current employee, who requests accommodations or discloses the, the need for accommodations. How do we go about that? They have topics on certain disabilities and diagnoses that could come across when they're um, interviewing uh, job applicants or they have current employees, like what that may look like in terms of how, what are some symptoms those people may experience? What are some of the things that may impact the job role? Um, and then what are some possible accommodations that they could explore um, when working with that applicant or with that current employee? Like, so, for example, if, I, if I'm an employer and I, was, I have a um, current employee who comes to HR and discloses that, I, that they have a diagnosis of uh, autism, and they want to talk about some possible accommodations for their for their job role. The the employer can go to that Jan website or Jan resource and look up you know the um, a diagnosis with autism. What are some um, symptoms that a person may experience who is on the autism spectrum? Um, how that diagnosis may impact uh, a job. Um, skill. So like it can impact time management, it can, it can impact social um, interactions, it can impact communication. And that shares all those types of possibilities. And then it shares, okay, if you, if this person requests accommodations, here are some possible um, accommodations you could look into and employ in implementing into your, um, into your workforce. Um, so that's a really cool feature as well. Um, and then they also, Jan also does um, trainings, um, on requests. So if you, let's like say like SLU want to do a, a training or webinar for students who are going to be entering the workforce in the next year, 
they could provide a webinar series on how to have that disclosure process, you know, what you, your rights are in the application process when requesting accommodations, your rights as an employee to request accommodations. They talk about the ADA, they talk about FMLA, which is a really helpful um, uh, legislation to, to learn about. So there's a lot of things Jan does, Jan does in terms of like, like accommodations process in the workforce, which is really helpful. Nice. I'm glad to hear about it. I'll definitely have to check it out. I know that Di, one of our career counselors, has worked with WRP, which is the Workforce Recruitment Program. Uh-huh. Can you tell me more about like what sort of, sort of opportunities it offers? Yeah, so that's a government program. Um, and so that program is, is specifically for um, students who are current college or currently work or studying in a college setting, uh, looking for an internship. Um, or they are a recent graduate or about to graduate looking for job opportunities um, in government and government contracted private sector um, agencies and um, businesses. And so they can apply and register for this program and they can get connected with like a kind of like a, like a hub or community um, space where they have um, they actually have an advisor who helps coach them on how to look for the right internship, look for the right support, um, how to navigate, again, that process of getting things set up with what they need in terms of their diagnosis. Um, it's also for um, employers to be a part of. And, also, and actually, I you can have school recruiters be a part of that, which I think a die might be a part of, um, to recruit students to go to this program. Um, and so it's it's a government agency that helps students get connected with businesses and government sector um, internships and job opportunities once they graduate. It's a really great resource. Awesome. I'm really glad to hear about that. And I know Dai is really knowledgeable and really takes it seriously when it first uh, opens with the program. So that's awesome. Yeah. We definitely refer people to Dai when they have their questions about WRP. She's great. <laughs> I love hearing that. Um. With those two resources, are there any other ones that you might recommend to students with disabilities who are trying to enter the workforce? Yeah, so we have a local one, um, the the Starkloff Institute, um, which is a, a phenomenal resource. We've done some programming and um, discussions with them previously. Um, and so Starkloff is a local organization that um, works with um, college students with disabilities and or graduated um students who are looking for jobs. Um, and so the, this organization has specific coaches to help students go through that process, whether they are about to graduate, whether they are exploring um, for lo looking for actually looking for a job, um, or they are a recent college graduate and are having a hard time finding a job, or they're having a hard time disclosing in the process of needing accommodations in the workforce. Um, they do a lot of um, community connections. They have they bring in um, local community businesses who are recruiting for um, employee employees, and so they'll bring they'll have some of those community events. Um, they do a lot of um, they have a summit where they um, bring in um, local leaders from around the St. Louis area to talk about like their perspective of disability in the workforce. Um, so they may have like someone from, I don't know, Edward Jones and their accessibility product team member give a talk on um, their what they're doing in their job, uh, their their workforce, um, which is really cool. And then it's, again, it's another networking opportunity. Um, 
And so that's a really great re resource we always refer students to as well. Um, so with that being said, in your opinion, um, how can employers be more accommodating to people with disabilities who may be applying for their job openings? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, I think when you are an employer, um, it's important to recognize the 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 challenge with the disclosure process and how that can be difficult um, because there. It, which is just a, a common um, a common experience in the disability community is the stigma of what it means to have a disability or diagnosis. Um, so it can be very challenging for an individual who has a disability or diagnosis to come forward and say, yeah, I do need to have these accommodations in place because there is that stigma of, you know, what that can mean in terms of their job performance, uh, their opportunity for promotion, um, their um, expertise in the field. So it's definitely can sometimes be challenging to have a space where they feel welcome to, to share that or request that. So I think for employers, it's important to know and understand the challenge with that and have a perspective on how to create a space that enables and empowers um, an individual with a disability to, to disclose in that process and how to navigate those conversations where it's welcoming and open and not um, predetermined and, um, and challenging. I think it can be definitely difficult when you have multiple parties involved, when you have, you know, the supervisor who may uh, be the first point of contact for a person who is requesting accommodations in the workforce. Then you have to bring in the HR piece of the actual legal imp implementation of that. And there's pieces of, okay, well, how much can we implement an accommodation in this job role? You know, what does that look like? Um, and, and another thing I think I would, I would definitely um, harp on is, you know, be willing to be flexible. I think with the pandemic, especially, we've kind of come to realize that job roles can be pretty flexible as long as we are willing to support that. You know, with uh, the hybrid work model of working from home certain days or working from home remotely, I think that's kind of created a bigger window of opportunity for individuals with disabilities to have some flexibility in their job role and where that what can mean that can mean for them. Um, and I also think too, it's important, important for employees, employers to know of the importance of just overall well-being and work balance and work and life balance. Um, and I think that is not specifically for people who have a disability diagnosis, but just for all employee employees overall, because jobs can be very demanding and people have to depend on those jobs to live. And so it, when the job demand is too great, but there's not a support, there's a gap there. So I think it's just important to, for employers to recognize that there is a need for work-life balance, regardless if that's a person with a disability or not, um, and the importance of overall well-being, whether it's mental or physical health. Um, having the work-life balance, I definitely uh, feel that is very important. So I'm glad to hear you talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's... I th and again, like I think the band as as much as the pandemic had a lot of um, unfortunate impacts on our society, I think there was also some benefits of like, you know, we really do need to recognize the importance of work life balance and having that promotion of you need to keep take care of yourself and have some self care implemented in some way. I think that was one, if not. 
the only one a great benefit of what the pandemic kind of shine light on, shined light on. I went dur er, during the pandemic, I went to grad school during that time. So I definitely understand the pros and cons of the pandemic and how it uh, affected everything afterwards. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so do you have any other advice for people with disabilities who are entering the workforce or applying for jobs? Yeah, I think um, exploring all your resources on campus is going to be a, a big help. So whether that's meeting you know, with career services and navigating you know that process or uh, exploring your community resources as well, it's just so that you can feel prepared um, for when you go into that process. And knowing your rights too, you know, maybe do some light reading on um, the ADA uh, would be helpful. And also kind of learning about the FMLA, um, which is going to be helpful for those who might need extended absences for some sort of medical or health reason is going to be helpful for you when you are in the workforce. Um, and, and, and also like, don't, it's okay to not know what to do with these with this process because it it is going to be totally brand new. It's going to be totally different. You're dealing with a whole different type of um, of ball game where you know you're working with me, for instance, in a college setting. You're going to be working with an employer and their HR team. Um, who like for me, you know, I I feel like I am pretty knowledgeable in terms of. Um, different dis dif different disabilities and diagnoses ac across the realm but when you go into an hr team hr representative they might not know have as much expertise in that diagnosis or in that type of disability so it may be harder to have them understand or see like what why you may need a certain combination or need a certain, a certain type of request and so don't be afraid to to know your rights and know what you need and don't be afraid to voice that uh, either and just seek support from where you can get it. Um, whether that is, you know, talking to your supervisor first when you're going to go into that process and seeking their support and talk through what are possibilities and knowing the possibilities is going to help kind of um, give you some more guidance of how you have those conversations with the HR team. When people are applying for these jobs and potentially having interviews, um, what are ways they can like sell themselves with their disability? Yeah, I think um, it's definitely going off strengths. Um, you know, you could, I think someone could say, you know, I have limitations with um, said skill, but my other, my skill is, is my skill is this aspect um, and focusing on more of the strength and, and, and not limiting yourself on what your diagnosis or display may present is going to be, um, is going to be helpful. Um, and I think just having a, um, you know, having a sense of, of pride in your disability, it's not more, it's more of a, it's a piece of you. It's not a, it's not a, um, it's just a part, it's a piece of your, of your identity. It doesn't define who you are as a person. It's just a piece of who you are as a person. So taking that into account when you're navigating those, those conversations is going to be important. Uh, and having an overall po positive mindset of how you could be an asset to any person that you are are meeting with. And knowing that, you know, you are a person like anybody else who's applying for the job. The only difference between you and that person uh, that you may be competing with is that, you know, you may have a disability diagnosis. Um, that's the only difference between you and that person. And that could be, and you can have an equal competitiveness and it can be that you have the same exact skill, but you just have a different presenting identity that someone else may not have. Um, 
And, and also too, that, you know, which is a conversation that you, that is constantly held in, in spaces like this is like, sometimes we only see, we only can recognize things we can see. So physical disabilities, um, are something that we can see easily, like, okay, they have a disability, but there may be things that we can, that the invisible disabilities. So, you know, mental health, um, autism spectrum, learning disabilities and neurodevelopmental disabilities, those are not easily or constantly recognized by a person when you're interacting with them. Um, so being cognizant of that is that everyone may not be educated in those, in those, um, areas of disability. So um, knowing your strengths is going to be a helpful piece when you go through that process. Awesome. Is there anything else that you would want to tell our listeners about? Um, I just want to keep harping on like, you know, meeting with career services here on campus. They're, they're great people. I don't mean to your home, your own horn, Mandy, but um, <laughs> you know, I, they're really great on helping students find employment um and they have a great alumni connection they have a great um community hub where you can get connected with people in the community um and if students are trying to figure out how to have that disclosure process and how to request accommodations in the workforce i would always they'll tell them you know check out the jan webs the jan resource you know talk with the the starcloth institute you know, and, and meet with them and, and get some, even if it's just like a, a one-time meeting where you talk through your concerns and it may be you just want to talk through your concerns or get some um, light information that will help you feel more prepared than just going in blindly. Um, so I always say use your resources to the extent because they're here to help you. Yes, definitely loving the shout out you gave to career services. So <laughs> listeners, if you're at SLU or even if you graduated, make sure to make an appointment with us. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to say thank you, Miles, for um, being a part of my first episode of the fourth season for Disability Employment Awareness Month and giving us all that information. I know I definitely learned a lot about what SLU has to offer, not just even for students, but also for the staff and faculty as well. Yeah, and I, I also would, you know, offer, um, you know, my contact, contact information. You can find me on Sue People Finder if, if anyone who's listening wants more information or wants to chat with me. I'm happy to chat with those uh, students or alumni. Um, but yeah, I, I love, you know, talking about this stuff because it's an important topic. So thanks for having me on here. Well, that's all we'll have for season four, episode one of the Launch Pod. A big thank you again to Haley Moss and Miles Urban for being a part of this month's episode. Ready, set, launch. <laughs>